You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go teabag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Angler's has you covered. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. That's Angler's, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Bill? Well, I'm doing pretty good. It's a little earlier than I'm used to getting up, except for fishing, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing real good, thanks. That's right, that's right. Are you? So you're not really an early riser as much, unless it's for fishing? No, I'm mostly a... Uh, a late stay or upper. Yeah. <laughs> and an early riser. Yeah. That's right. What would be a late stay up in the night? Oh, it's getting, it's changing a little bit with my age now, but it, it was, I go out to my workshop around nine or 10 at night and come in around one or two in the morning. So, and out there I got all my fly tying stuff and I take my computer. And so I do a little writing and, and, uh, tie some flies and stuff out there. Perfect. Well, we're going to talk about your background. You've got a lot of years, probably more than most, in fly fishing, and we'll talk about how long that is. And you've, okay. it seems like you've done just about everything. I think you've owned a fly shop or two. You've uh, you've done just about everything, including carp fishing, which we're going to talk about today as well. Good. Um, but before we get into all that and talk about you, know, and I also want to touch on the carp uh, or the fly fishing invitation you have focused in Washington. But take okay. us back to fly fishing real quick. How did you first get into it? What's your first memory of fly fishing? Let's see. Well, my first memory of fly fishing was that I've always tended to do things the hard way, not on purpose. It just happens that way. And nobody in my family fly fished. And it just seemed like when I read about it and when I saw it on TV, uh, just seemed like a fun thing to do. Everything that was involved in it, you know, just wasn't buying a lure and chucking it out there. Uh, The fly tying, the rod building, the entomology, just everything about it. And so I went down to, a, uh, it isn't there anymore. I went down to a local sporting goods store that sold rod building stuff. And I actually made my first fly rod. And uh, I used that for actually several years. Where was this at? What, which state was this in? This is in Washington. Mm. Yeah, started it all in Washington. So you grew up in like Western Washington or where in Washington? I did grow up here. Actually, I my fishing started as a as very young boy in Oklahoma mm. with a cane pole, not a cane rod, but a cane pole and uh, with a bobber and worms and or minnow or something like that. What's the difference between a cane rod and a cane pole? 
<laughs> well, the cane rod, uh, which I also made in my early days, is crafted from bamboo, but it is heat treated, it's split, it's planed to within uh, one thousandths of an inch for six pieces that are then put together as a, a hexagon and then then fitted together as a rod that has a continuous taper on it like like modern rods are now but they're made of bamboo and the reason they were is that bamboo has a good quality of taking a bend and then recovering quickly and it's that recover time that uh, makes it a good caster yeah and so that's why the early early rods were made not the early early rods but the rods in the uh, turn of the century and up through the 40s mostly of uh, bamboo then with the discovery of, of fiberglass uh, that came in a lot less expensive, a lot easier for people to get a hold of. And uh, th that was the rod of choice or the material of choice for rods for years. Then came graphite and boron and so on up till modern day uh, materials. Yep, yep. So you grew up in Oklahoma and then, and then you made your way eventually out uh, to Washington? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the, and out here is where I eventually got started in, in fly fishing. Gotcha. And I was in the service, and uh, I'd made my rod, so uh, I got transferred to Mobile, Alabama. And my wife and I had a canoe, and we also had a tent trailer, and we had a Volkswagen Fastback. So I strapped the canoe on top of the Volkswagen and pulled a tent trailer, and we went from here to Mobile. And down there, I did a lot of fishing for bass and sea trout and I asked him when I went down there. I asked him, "Do you have any trout fishing down there?" We sure do. We got green trout. I said, "What? What's a green trout?" They said, "Well, uh, you know, green trout. It's it's just uh, it's a bass." Oh. So that was my introduction. <laughs> That's right. The bass is your. I've heard that talk about the Midwest too. They say the uh, the native uh, trout of the uh, the Midwest is the bass, is the smallmouth bass or something like right. that. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. So I fish for bass and bluegill and, and crappie and stuff like that down there. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, in all this, when did the, uh, you actually, was it the, um, was it the blue, the blue Dunn fly shop? Blue Dunn, yeah. yeah. How'd you come to own, uh, I think you owned a fly shop, right? I did, yes. How did that come to be? It was kind of always a dream. I worked at REI and I worked uh, for a long time. And then uh, I had this thought in the back of my mind of owning a fly shop and uh in offering classes and things like that and um I, I worked at rei before i went into the service in 66 i went into the coast guard and i got out in 70. then i worked at rei again from 70 to 75. Hmm. and while there i introduced fly fishing uh through rei with classes fly tying classes and fly casting classes actually i was one of the first ones. Actually, it was the Washington Fly Fishing Club, a bunch of those guys out of Green Lake that really started doing classes for everybody. And then I was one of the first individuals that started doing it. Hmm. And then uh, I just kind of stuck with it and stuck with it. And then I had a chance to work for this this uh, rod building company. They didn't always build just fly rods, but uh, uh, a company called Totem Trader. And what I liked about it most is I lived in Woodenville and uh, I worked downtown REI and it was situated out in Carnation. 
and I don't know if you're familiar with no. the geography around here, but Carnation is all the back country roads to get to from my house, from Woodenville. And then REI was driving all the highways and uh, toll booths and downtown and everything to get to. So I really opted, I really liked the idea of being in Carnation, a small town, you know, maybe a couple thousand people and that was it. So I went out there for a while and then I quit and I was on my own. My brother and I uh, had been putting together a movie this whole time and uh, it's called Angler's Autumn. It won some awards and uh, it's just been shown a long time, it's, especially now because it's sort of a classic because it's, it's, uh, it's got some years on it. Yeah. What year did Angler's Autumn come out? 76. 76. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we always get a thrill out of showing it at some clubs and things like that. And we also did an ongoing slideshow through the 70s that, uh, that we did mostly in eastern Washington. And that was called Wind, Sand, and Trout. And that shows these some of the famous, uh, uh, they're not fly fishing only, but they were restricted gear only lakes. Hmm. But it, at that time, there were no trees. Now it's just the, the shoreline's covered with trees. The little creeks are choked over with trees, you know, and you can't get to it. So it's, it's a good uh, point of history in showing of the movies. So anyway, back to the shop. I really wanted to do this, and uh, my wife and I thought, well, it's about time we got out of Seattle and went to Wenatchee, and uh, so we we did, and then while I was there, I met a few guys at Fly Fish and decided to open my first fly shop, Blue Dunn. In Wenatchee? Yes, in Wenatchee. That's right, and I'm not sure, is the Blue Dunn, is that still going? No. No. Uh, it uh, opened the one in Wenatchee, then it went to East Wenatchee, then I bought another fly shop in Spokane, and I moved to Spokane to run that one. And then uh, in 2000, let me think, 2005, we decided to give that up. Uh, I wanted a paycheck. Yeah. So <laughs> that was the main <laughs> impetus of getting out of that job. Right. I was offered a job down at the, uh, the fly shop down in Redding, California, and he put me in the travel department which I was kind of known for and, and taking people on trips and things, especially saltwater stuff. So they put me in charge of the warm saltwater. So that took me through my fly casting. Gotcha. And did you move down to California or did you stay up in Washington? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Moved down there in uh, 2005 and I worked for him, uh, traveled all over the world. It was a pretty cool job. It's probably one of the best. That is a cool job. Yeah, I thought about auctioning it off when I left, but they wouldn't let me. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great job. Yeah, 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 gotcha. So, yeah, and you did a lot of traveling. We'll probably touch on that a little bit as okay. we go here. Um, but what was the, the fly? I'm always interested in the fly shop, um, you know, experience. What was it like for you? What did you enjoy most uh, about, you know, running, owning a fly shop? Just being my own boss. We've been our own boss. My wife and I own beauty supplies. She's in the beauty business, and we own uh, three different shops in uh, Seattle area. Oh, wow. And we, yeah, when we moved over to uh, Wenatchee, we still had those, so we eventually sold those off, and then it was just the fly shop. Quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's subscription fly box. 
Smithies has been producing high quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly time materials right now at Smitty's Flybox. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittiesflybox.com. And what do you think you was the toughest thing about owning a fly shop? Uh, the toughest thing about owning a fly shop was not carrying it through to the end. My dream is always to retire come in once or twice a week and sign checks and then go back out fishing. Right. <laughs> That's right. We, we've had a lot of, uh, you know, fly shop owners on, and there's always this interesting thing where you hear them, them say that, you know, you want, they want to own a fly shop. And then when they get in, they realize that, wow, you kind of can get stuck in the fly shop. That's a, that's yeah. a tough thing, you know, because it's hard. People come for you in the shop, right? Cause you're the guy. Right. And, yeah. uh, and I, I grew up around a little fly shop as well. And I remember, you know, it was tough because that one went away eventually as well. And I remember how, um, you know, it was a little painful. Now they look back on it. I think it was a good thing. You know what I mean? That kind of hindsight is, you know, and all that. But, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I hear what you're saying, though. It is one of those things where it's hard to let go, right? It was like your baby, I'm sure. It really was. And, and when at you small enough where I knew a lot of people and it was fun when Judy and I, my wife and I would go out to dinner or something. I'd see somebody or one of the customers and. Or I'd run into him on the river. I did start guiding when I was over there, guiding the Wenatchee River Steelhead. And I really enjoyed that because before I moved over to Wenatchee, I'd given up fly fishing for steelhead. I've been in Woodenville for 20 years. And uh, I just, I got tired of 37 degrees and rain and wind. Right. And I just decided, I don't want to do this anymore. And sold my sold my drift boat, and huh. when we went over went over to Wenatchee, and I knew there was some fly fishing in Wenatchee, but and when I just opened the shop, I decided I was going to do some. But a friend of mine came over, uh, he and his girlfriend, and uh, from they were from Seattle area, and he knocked on my door one morning, and I said, "Yeah, well, hey, hey, Joe, how you doing?" He said, "I'm fine. We're going down the river and fish. You want to go?" And I said. Oh, I don't know, I guess. So I went down there, and um, Joe was quite a talker. We hmm. called him the diesel because you just never turned him off. He hmm. just kept running and running and running. But we all loved him. And um, uh, his girlfriend was an accomplished fly fisher and caster, too. And uh, so she went through the hole, and as she was going down through the hole, I saw a fish come up behind her. And I told Joe, hold the thought. And I went out there and uh, put my sink tip down through there and uh i had a a real mess in my line because it had been uncoiled in a long time i still had stuff and as i was straightening out the line i saw my line past my tip straightening out and then as this fish come up out of the water i realized it was connected to my line and uh, i got my first steelhead in like five years and I was in my shirt sleeves. I was wow. in heaven. It was nice. <laughs> now, where was that? And where was that? Uh, that was on the river. It was on the Wenatchee River. Oh, right. So the so you're in the so Wenatchee is is right on the banks of the Columbia. Which so you're still in an area where summer steelhead can get up to. There's no dams blocking them. Oh well, down below there is. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's dams along the Columbia that stop them from getting up there. But uh, no, at that time they had a pretty healthy run. 
and the Wenatchee is a real small personal river and it was, they had good road access and it was good uh, river to raft and it was just to me it was just like the perfect river and I had a, a really good started about mid-August and went through November yep the, the real fishing season it was open pretty much all year except during the spawning season yeah in the spring but uh those are the times I guided, and I only guided like two, three times a week. But that was perfect for me. That's right. Yeah, I had a good time. I really enjoyed that. That's cool. Yeah. So basically, you started out in Western Washington fishing for winter steelhead, and then you went over mm-hmm. the Cascade Range to the Wenatchee area, and you found the summer steelhead, right? The yeah. And then, and that's again, the the water is you know you're in the summer, obviously, <laughs> so you're in 80, 90, 100 degree weather. loving it and so this is good okay and then like you said the fly shop eventually went down there i want to go back to the angler's autumn um that movie so is there anywhere like could somebody find that out there online anywhere or what what Uh, was that it was on youtube oh it was okay Uh, yeah we'll take a look yeah you can look up angler's autumn uh bill and boyd martz yeah yeah we'll take a look i think it's still on there if not give me a call and i can send you okay you know, thumb drive with it on there. Yeah, we might, if anybody's interested listening now, we might uh, send them your way as well. But, um, but yeah. no, this is good. Okay, so we got that. And I wanted to jump in. We'll circle back around, too, on some of the other stuff in your travels. But I'm interested in carp fishing. We've done a few episodes around the country on it. And uh, it's one of those things. I want to hear a little bit on the history because I know you've been in it probably longer than most. Um, when did you start carp fishing? When did that, because you talked about a little bit in your history we talked about here. When did carp come in? Uh, early nineties. Mm. And, uh, it came on cause my wife and I took this, this, uh, float trip down what's called the Winchester Wasteway. And when we first put in, there were carp everywhere and I was trying to catch them and I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. And, and, but anyway, it always intrigued me. Then I had a fellow who worked for me in the Wenatchee area. His name is Dars Knoble. He has a fly shop now in Ephrata, Washington. What's that one called? It's a high desert fly angler. And uh, he started to work for me. He was a skinny bean pole of a kid, and, and, uh, but he, he just loved to fish. In fact, our interview was, was held on a, on a lake <laughs> fishing. Huh. And uh, I always kid him that I caught more fish, but I think he let me just so he could get the job. <laughs> right. <laughs> Smart. So, but uh, anyway, he, uh, he had kind of the same idea. And so on his days off from... Uh, where we were at, he and he lived in Ephrata, which is real close to uh, Banks Lake. He started going over to Banks and trying to figure this out. And after about a year, or maybe more, we finally found the real key to fly fishing for carp. And that is, they don't attack the fly. It's not like blind casting for trout. Mm. It's not like river fishing for trout. Or even, uh, you know, stripping a fly in for a bass, which there are a lot of bass over there, too, in Banks Lake. Mm. It's more of a, uh, a hunting game. We did it all by sight. Uh, there's a lot of shallow areas in Banks Lake. And the key was watching the fish's body language and putting the fly without scaring it with its fish, without spooking it. You know, so you didn't fire a bullet down to them, you know, and have it splash in front of them. Yep. Yeah. Had to kind of throw a little lobbing cast, maybe have it land a little bit past them, and then pull it in front of them. Hmm. And then sometimes you can't see their head because it's in a cloud of mud. They're in there uh, blowing into it and then picking up stuff that, you know, come out. And then you watch the body language. 
Huh. And so, so you don't feel it. You just, the, the carp is nose down, tail up, and it, you watch the body shift. And as one guy pointed out to me, I didn't know until a long time later that it's actually one of the telltales, you know, that register subconsciously, but you don't quite know what it is. It's like when people say, how do you know it hit me? Yeah, yeah I, I just don't know, you know. But what it was was they, when they bent slightly, the sun would reflect off their scales slightly different. Huh. So you get this little flash almost before they, to let you know that they've sucked in the fly. And before they spit it out, you give a strip set like you do bonefish. And then if you're on, then you raise the rod tip. So that took a couple years to figure out. Mm. And... Uh, when we finally did, it was like, uh, you know, an epiphany. Jeez, we now know how to fish for them. Now, and then we had the whole lake to ourselves, but probably due to our own ego, I guess we wanted to let everybody know how much we knew about it. <laughs> how we showed all these people how to do it. And then we started this uh, invitational in, uh, in the later 90s, and it was called the Schmutz Klooper. S-C-H-M-O-O-T-S, Clooper. And uh, it was in a, um, a book. Let me think. Uh, a John Gierak book. Oh, yeah. Another Day in Paradise. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, look in there under carp. And in there, one of the paragraphs will say, it was a hot and windless afternoon, and the carp were clooping the schmoots. <laughs> <laughs> and we always like that saying. So uh, I used it for a while. And then this last time I went around using it, I actually got permission from him. And he said, well, you don't need my permission. Just don't, you know, as long as you're not selling the name or anything. So anyway, yeah, it's always been Schmutzklooper to me. Uh, so I revived it uh, through the fly shop here in Seattle. And then uh, now, I'm, now I'm doing it on my own. Is that uh, Dave McCoy's fly shop? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Have you interviewed him before? Yeah, yeah. We've had Dave on and, and John uh, Gearock's been on a couple times. Uh, we'll oh, put, okay. We'll put links out to those episodes. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, we started with him, did a couple of them, then I decided to do it on my own, and he did too because he just didn't have time to mess with this. And so I've been doing it. This will be, next year will be our seventh year, I think, since I've come back to it. Oh, wow. So right now, as we speak, you can go find, uh, get involved in that invitational. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's an invitational, but I need to know about it. You know, you can't just show up or uh, be there because I do limit it somewhat. There were about 30 people there this year, and that's just about the limit. Okay, and if somebody wanted to find out about that or get involved, what should they do? Uh, com. Okay, yeah. And there's a part of there in, in, under events, and it's under Schmooze Klooper. And then they can get in touch with me. Uh, there, I can give you, uh, you know, a phone number because we had several people said I've been looking to get into it and I've heard about this and I've been wanting to try it. So it's open to, you know, people who've done it for years and years and years to people who've never done it. Yeah, and it's not for everybody. I mean, not everybody likes walking in the mud, you know. And <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Yeah, describe that a little bit. What, what is it? What makes it, uh, you know, the invitation or what it is today? Like, describe the event. How does it work? Is it a one day event? No, it's uh, it starts on Friday evening in July at six o'clock. And during that, I've already bought maps for everybody of Banks Lake. And it's a detailed map that show all the little bays and 
shallow areas, and we literally put X's on the map. And it goes around to people who have been fishing this for a long time, and they put X's on their favorite spots. And then just to throw them off, I put an X in the middle of the lake, just to hmm. see, see what yeah. they're going to do about that, because there's nothing out there but deep water. <laughs> but uh, it's a time to introduce people. It's a time that uh, people that haven't done it before, they get to see the flies that are used. They get to see a place where they can drive to. If they're not boating, if they're boating, they can see where they can drive to. And uh, I mean, uh, boat to. And uh, it's just a, a real gathering. And probably more than anything now, it's become, because since we've had people come to it, oh, well, every year since it started. And uh, it's kind of a social event also. You know, Friday night after that, we have... Uh, we have a grill there and people can grill their own food or you can go into town at one of the restaurants there and have dinner and then come back. We have a, usually there's a fire band going on by that time over there, but we have a, a propane fireplace, you know, fake fireplace. So we all gather around that and tell lies and stories. And That's cool. Yeah. It, it gives people a chance to get to know one another. And uh, I mean, that, to me, that's one of the biggest parts of it since I've been doing it so long. This is and, cool. And, yeah, it's just just cool place to be. We take over the whole motel. Is this in Cooley City or, or Green yeah. Cooley? It's in Cooley City at the Alacozy. This is interesting because as you think about where this is, Banks Lake, we've done a lot of episodes on the Columbia Basin. It's a giant, one of the largest basins in the western part of the U.S., right? The river mm -hmm. goes up into Canada. We've had episodes above up in Canada but there's this interesting thing about the Columbia, right? There's a lot of dams. I'm not sure how many there are, 20 or 30 major dams. Yeah. Do you know how Banks Lake fits into the Columbia system? Like why it's there? Is it How is it connected? Uh, it's connected because uh, irrigation. Mm. For Banks Lake, there wouldn't be all the farms there. Gotcha. So Bank Lakes is there to irrigate all that eastern part of Washington, Moses Lake That's and right. stuff like and that. And then it comes out in the Winchester Wasteway, and then, then water is siphoned off of that into the farms. And it eventually does it go into the Moses because I fished the potholes reservoir area. Does it eventually flow into that area? Yes, you're exactly right. It does pothole. It's kind of interesting because basically I see it now. Yeah, the Columbia, you know, historically and it still does go to the west of Banks Lake and then it wraps mm -hmm. around and then heads up. Yeah. But but basically this is uh, and is it at Grand Coulee Dam? Is that where? That's Coulee Dam's right at the head of the lake. Yeah. So you got this giant, which is I mean, isn't Grand Coulee the one dam that has no fish ladder? Uh, you're right. Yeah. So and, uh, yeah. And it does, the water's levels changed, but it's not like a tide. It's not like, okay, I can look at, you know, a year ahead of time and see what the tides are going to be. The water levels changed and that really, uh, taxes a person's imagination and how to go after these fish. Because when it's really high and they're releasing water, the water can get kind of cold. That puts those fish off. But then when it drops and drops and drops and drops, then it warms up and then those fish come up into the shallows. And it's not that they stop eating, it's just hard to get to them to see where they're eating and see them while they're eating. And, and that makes a big difference. Gotcha. Yeah, this is great. And I want to touch more on, on the carp. I, I just wanted to wrap this up just so um, I see it. But yeah, I think I got it. So basically Grand Coulee, is the last so like you said winchester or uh, wenatchee you got those summer steelhead that can make it up because there's fish ladders but once they get to grand coulee um which is kind of the crazy thing right that's this that stops 
any anatomist fish from going up for the, whatever it is next thousand miles into Canada. Yeah. Well, and above, above there, of course, is then they start uh, those, you know, the reservoirs will start. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. Above there. And then they have those, those big, uh, the fish pens up there and they have some es escapees from that, which make for some pretty large trout. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high-quality fly tie materials, and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed, and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one, and it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, four buying into this unimproved boat ramp, uh, pulling the boat out, and, and we ended up with a great opportunity uh, and landed a nice, very nice cromer and had a few other touches. Fished one of the great rivers in the country. It was amazing. Not only do they cover steelhead, but all species in the area, and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt. They can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine. They have a great online store, fast shipping, and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support Waters Less. Please check in with Ed and Kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest. So that's it. And then, so Banks Lake is this, um, you know, like a lot of these cool places. I mean, we did a carp episode in the middle of um, Arizona, like right in, oh, yeah. right, you know what I mean? And so carp, or that's the cool thing about carp, are they're everywhere. They can be everywhere. Um, that's right. So Banks Lake, so basically describe that a little bit, like you were talking about it a little bit, but if somebody comes there or a similar lake, how do they find these fish? How would you find carp if you're out there the first time on the lake? Well, well, I look for shallow water because it's all sight fishing. Yeah. And um, during their spawning season, which starts anywhere from mid-May and will last through even early July, if it's a really cold summer, they will be, depending on the water, they can be in water that will be dry the rest of the year up there spawning. And then they're really difficult to catch at that time, but it's a good time to see if there are fish in that area and what they're doing. Uh, like I say, they're very difficult to catch. You've got one female trying to get away from about seven or eight males <laughs> chasing after them, after her. And uh, uh, but it gives you a, a really good idea about how many are in there and what's going on. The next best thing, or one of the best things, then is getting a map. It shows shallow areas and uh, some of the elevations in the lake. And if you can find shallow areas, especially extended shallow areas, which we call flats, just like in saltwater, then find a way to get to it, uh, either by road or hiking in or by boat. And then you, look, you can look on a clear water day, you can look for tracks. And the tracks, uh, have you saltwater fish before? Uh, a little bit, very little. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not, I haven't done any of the major, yeah, flat okay. stuff. But. Well, on flats, uh, bonefish make a track. Mm. And it's sort of a flat, if you imagine, a flat bottom to it. And then an, an oval, it's like a half an oval. I'll put it that way. 
in there and it's buried in the mud. That's where they put their nose down in the mud and they blow and then they, they uh, bring up the bugs and crustaceans and stuff. And the carp make the same kind of tracks. And you can look in this area, if you see a lot of them, there may not be a carp in sight, but you can be rest assured that maybe later in the day they'll be in there mm -hmm. or maybe tomorrow they'll be in there. You know, but if you find the tracks, then you know it's a place where, where carp, you know, come in to feed. Now, if it's all rocky, uh, then, then there's, you can't tell tracks. You just have to uh, start in where you know they're at and then change from there. I've probably walked the whole shoreline as much as I can hmm. for maybe, you know, on and off for over the years, maybe for 20 miles, well, 15 wow. miles up from Cooley City. Okay. On the east side or the west side? On the east side. Yeah. The west side is pretty much all cliffs. Oh, okay. Except in the ex extreme south end and the extreme north end. But the rest of it is all pretty, uh, drops right off into deep water. Gotcha. Nice. So, so you've covered, so basically if somebody was going out to a, a new lake, uh, like you said, they can just look for shallow water. That's a starting point. You got to have shallow water. And what is, is there too shallow of water? Is there a perfect depth? I've seen them. Uh, well, perfect depth to me is like uh, knee to mid thigh, and uh, I'm five ten, so that gives you an idea how deep it yeah. is. And if it's really, really muddy, it's usually if, if there hasn't been a windstorm, it's usually because there's a lot of fish in there looking for food. And if you can't see them, which can happen sometimes, then we've used occasionally we've used an indicator. You know how deep it is because you're standing in it. Yeah. So you just set the fly down so it's about three inches above what the bottom would be and cast out and then just retrieve as slow as you can and they just watch that indicator because it doesn't always you know suck down or dart off it just kind of moves and uh they can set the hook wow what is a uh, what would be a good carp fly for an indicator or yeah if you're out there fishing well i've got a fly that i call uh bug eye carp woolly and uh it's kind of a in fact, I've got a tattooed on my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so when people ask me, I just show them my thumb. <laughs> my grandson got into it this last year, and he got into fly tying. So he came over one day, and we tied this fly up. And he said, I want to get this tattooed. He's got a lot of tattoos. My granddaughter is a tattoo artist, and my son oh, wow. is a tattoo artist. So we, uh, I said, well, I'm going to get one, too. And he said, I'm going to have it on my thumb. And I said, ooh, God, that's going to hurt. I said, no, I'll get one with you. So we've got matching tattoos on our thumbs. Wow. What does that fly, if you could just describe a little bit, what does that look like? Well, it's, it's a carp woolly, so it is, it's, uh, there's no tail. Uh, the material is, is usually just chenille. It can be black chartreuse, uh, variegated, um, you know, all, all the different kinds of colors, but my favorite is black mm -hmm. and then chartreuse and really, really muddy water. Mm. And it can be tied on a size anywhere from a size six to a size eight hook, 10 hook maybe. And I put on the, uh, uh, I put on the bug eyes or, or just eyes that I set right above the point mounted on what would be the, if, if the hook or vice would be the top of the fly. And I do that rather than wrap lead around the body because this way I can see how how much weight it is because it's very deep. 
uh, might try a heavier fly. If it's really shallow and, and clear, I'll put on maybe bead chain eyes that have hardly any weight at all. And I, I trim it so that it'll uh, trim the, uh, which in the water, the eyes will make that turn point up oh, as right. it goes down. And then I'll trim the bottom of it. And then on the sides, I'll, let, I'll leave the fibers as I palmer forward to make, you know, like a woolly, woolly bugger or woolly worm, woolly worm. And so it'll act, they'll act like rudder, not rudders, but as outriggers. So that that fly will sit there on the bottom with a point up on it. And uh, that's the way it'll ride through the water. So almost all the fish that I hook with that fly are right in the upper lip, right in the very front. Yeah, they're in the front. Okay. And then, and then you put those eyes, so you like the, the bead eyes you'd put right above the point. So that's kind of almost like mid body. And is that, and why do that versus putting them in the, say, towards the front of the hook, maybe towards the hook eye? Well, towards the front and towards the, the uh, hook eye is that it makes it ride different in the water. And sometimes that's not bad. When I want the rear end sticking up, I've put like little foam strips on, on red, uh, like red material, like uh, sometimes chenille or, okay. or gummy, you know, that gummy material. And I want it to float with that tip up. Sometimes I'll put those eyes up front uh, on the bottom so that it'll, again, I mean, on the top, again, so it'll float point up, but the back, and I'll sometimes glue a, a foam strip on it so it kind of raises the back and has that tail wagging around up there. So, but mostly I put them on top because this way it doesn't close the gap. Yeah. If I put it on the bottom, it tends to close the gap to the hook and then I get more hookups this way. Gotcha. And what is the hook you would use for this fly? Um, uh, Just like a long shank? No, actually I use a regular shank. No, not too long, uh, but a regular short shank hook that uh, A-Rex hooks has a, actually has a, a good short shank, very sharp, wide gap hook model that works very well. And if they're big fish and you're, and you're fishing around uh, reeds and stuff, you need to make sure it's not going to straighten out on you. Sometimes those, the, uh, like mustad hooks, which we used for years, was you know, 9671 or 9670. They would straighten out if you're trying to keep a big fish from going in the reeds. Because once they're in the reeds, they're gone. Oh, you're done. What would be a big fish? My biggest so far is 27 and a half pounds. Wow. That is, that's big. Yeah. That was on the Columbia River. That was on the Columbia, not in the uh, not in this the lake. Not in, in Banks Lake or anything. Wow. 27 Columbia pounds. Columbia River has some really monstrous carp. It's hard to fish it from shore, though, or without a boat. Mm, gotcha. So what was that 27-pounder? What was that fight like? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, uh, it towed the boat around for a while. Did it really? Yeah. My friend Darcy and I were doing. He was poling the boat, and he's got a pole that he uses just like, you know, flats fishing. And we were in a shallow area with a lot of lily pads. And I, we've done it so much together, I just put my hand back. So he stopped, and I used a two-hand rod sometimes, and we were back like that. And I use it to dap rather than cast to these fish because it's real still and they're kind of in their logged up or sleep mode. They're taking like taking a siesta in the afternoon. I could just see his tail out the back end. I couldn't see his head in front of the weeds. So I just 
lowered the fly so it didn't scare him. And then I watched the tail. And as soon as I saw the tail wiggle, I stripped the fly. It was on him, and I brought it up. Wow. Yeah. So <sighs> we we, ch- we chased him around a while. <laughs> no kidding. So are these carp, uh, do you think, are they smarter than trout? Or are they pretty much the same, very similar? There's, there, there's, I don't know if they're smarter, but what they do is harder to predict. They're not as predictable as trout. And uh, whether that makes them smarter or not, I don't know. Uh, we like to say they're smarter than trout just to, you know, get under the skin of trout fishermen who don't like carp. But uh, they're just really, really difficult to predict where they're going to be at a certain time, what they're going to like. Like in, if they're in the rocks and stuff, the crawdad patterns are usually really good. And uh, if they're in the mud, uh, you know, that little carp woolly or flies like that are good. And uh, if, if they're swimming around, like for a while in July, this was a kind of a, we had really great water this, for this uh, schmooze clooper. They were taking damsels. Oh, wow. On the surface? No, no. unfortunately, below the surface. I've never caught one on the surface. No, so never, you never got one on the surface? Not at Banks. My friend has, Darth. He's taken them on grasshopper patterns, but I never have been there at the right time to do that. Oh, right. But they do take uh, occasionally a surface bug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. This is great. And so, yeah, and there's... Well, I'm curious about when you started, you know, you said the 90s. What was it like in the 90s? Were there, did you hear of anybody else carp fishing? Did you know of any other fly anglers out there doing it? No. I figured that there were, but I figured that they just kept it to, they were what I call closet, right? Closet <laughs> carpers. Yeah. That's right. When did carp, do you think, when did it start getting, because that was over 30 years ago. When do you think yeah. it started getting on the map where you start hearing more about it? Oh, probably, um, in the you know 2010s, you know, in 2000 to 2010, it really started going. A lot of it has to do with uh, there's a lot of people out there fishing now, and and to uh, find a fish that is challenging, and especially during the really hot dog days of summer, it, then it's it's sometimes just not right to go fishing for trout. You know, the, the waters are too warm, they're too hot, and uh, you can go after carp, though. Hell, you can take them for a walk after you catch them and then let them go back. They're fine. Then, yeah, they're okay. Yeah. Right. That's the cool thing about carp. So they, and water temperature. So as far as conditions, you know, if it's, well, you talked about, you know, the spawning period, May, mm-hmm. you know, through early July. But I mean, when can you fish carp? What is the timing? Can you fish it throughout the year? Or when can you not fish carp? Um, probably dead midwinter. Although yeah. I know a few guys who know places that has open water that have carp and um, they fish them all through the winter and they catch them. They feed a lot, but uh, I don't go out during that time just because it's cold. It's cold. That's cold, <laughs> one of the yeah. reasons I like, I like carp fishing because it's during warm water. I can wet wade. And, yeah, yeah, that's great. So you could fish it. So basically when you start in the uh, you know spring, do you fish it out through? When do you stop fishing for carp? Uh, about this time. They're still feeding a lot and actually – through September is not bad, but the wind starts, the wind, <laughs> yeah. the uh, sun starts going so far south that you can't get a good angle on them to see them. Oh, right. Because you have to, pretty much you have to see this is a, you're spotting them and you're putting the fly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you need that midsummer, uh, well, from 
late May through mid-September, you need that time period like between 10 and 3 where the sun is up a ways and you can see in the water. Yeah, right. You're going to be able to see. And how close can you get to carp? I mean, do you try to get a certain distance or, you know, like what, what's your, what, what's the closest you've ever been to a carp that you've caught? Oh, that actually caught? Yeah. I, I did find one that was kind of resting up on shore once. And I put my hand under its belly and I tried to scoop him out, but he slipped out of my hand. Right. <laughs> so you can get, off. you can sneak up on him. When yeah. you're, so if you're kind of in a boat, you're, you could be boat or waiting or off the shore or whatever, but you see the fish, say it's 30 feet away. Talk about, or, or yeah, okay. how you drop yeah. that in. Describe that. Okay. Um, you want the landing to be as soft as possible. That also came back to me. I just came back from Mexico, and we were fishing uh, baby tarpon and bonefish. And my buddy down there, he's uh, he's been guiding and fishing. He's, he's kind of known as a, a real celebrity in the Yucatan for, uh, for fly fishing. He's one of the best fly fishers I know, one of the fishiest guys I know down there. But I was having trouble spooking some of the tarpon off. And he says, Bill, don't you remember? You just let it lob in there. Let that fly just settle down on the water, not fire it in there like a bullet. And uh, it brought me back to my senses. And, and that's what you try to do with carp. And uh, let it lob in there, especially if it's real clear. You need to put it out if the fish is moving, if it's feeding and it's there's mud coming up around it, the closer you can put it to the fish. And where you want the fly to and it dr actually drop down and in, where the fish can see it is right, almost right in front of its nose, just slightly off center. So one of his eyes can pick it up and then that's when its body turns to get it. And that's your uh, telltale to set the hook. Right. When is, when you see that body or that, like you said, that shiny, that chain, little right, change. That body movement. Uh, so that's, that's when you do a really clear water. Sometimes you're going to have to fish with a single hand rod and get it way out there, fish 30, 40 feet put it out in front of them so it doesn't spook them. And then when they get close, start kind of a hopping retrieve to get their attention and then see if they'll come to it. There's one thing I will mention is that the last three or four years that I've done, because I was um, fishing for them with my two-handed rod, which seems a little sacrilegious when you put a thousand dollar two-handed rod that's meant for steelhead and sea turtle and such. And then you've got your hardy reel. You right. Know, on there <laughs> and you go out there and you dap for carp well i figure it's very fitting yeah i mean they're it's, it's you know royalty fittings for a royalty fish but what i did was several years ago a friend of mine said uh his uh, I, uh well wasn't a friend of mine it was my brother a friend of his was get, getting rid of her bamboo garden and so we went over there and cut a bunch of bamboo and so I made a bamboo pole and uh, I tried tenkara. Tenkara doesn't work very well with the carp because when you're waiting for them, you don't know if you're gonna see them 10 feet in front of you or 30 feet in front of you. Tenkara, it's a fixed line at the tip. You have no way of pulling in line unless you back up and you have no way of extending line, you know, unless you go forward. So it's always this fixed line. So I made this bamboo pole with three guides on it. It's about 13 to 15 feet long. I put three guides on it. I wrapped 
uh, a handle made of parachute cord and I put a loop in the back. To that loop in the back, I put, uh, oh, about 40 feet of running line. Like I had a bunch of old fly lines, so I just cut the running line off of them. And then to that, I attach anywhere from six to 12 feet of leader. And then I use that. If I see the fish in close and I can get down on my, my carp crouch way down low, and I can put that bamboo pole right next to the surface and just have maybe a foot of line past the tip and just, just kind of jig it right in front of their eye. Or if I see them quite a ways off, I could actually put out some line and with not very good accuracy, but get it in the general vicinity and then drag it like a drag and drop. You drag it in front of them and let it, then let it drop. And then when you hook them, you do the same thing, do a strip set hook, pull up on the rod, let it take the line till it gets to the end and then you just hang on. You just try to move them around. And then you, that's also when you want a, a stout hook so it won't bend them out. Today's episode is sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company. They've been designing and manufacturing fly fishing equipment and flies since 1978 in their home base in Wyoming. In 2020, they launched jhflyco.com and started selling gear directly uh, online to anglers all over the country. You can go ahead and right now and check out their huge selection of uh, rods, reels, fly lines, tools, accessories. Uh, and right now, if you go to jhflyco.com swing, you can get 25% off your first order. Just like Amazon, they'll ship everything directly to your door, saving you time and money. But unlike Amazon, you'll be supporting a great fly shop and this podcast by simply grabbing a few uh, products, maybe just a couple of flies. Check it out. There we go. Get free shipping right now. All orders over $50 and uh, get that 25% off your first order. jhflyco.com slash swing. Okay. Back to the show. What's the advantage of using, say, like that cane pole versus a two-handed spay rod versus a single-handed rod? Uh, the single-handed rod is really hard to cast in close. Uh, you can't cast it because most people, when they try to cast close, they try to cast harder and yeah. harder to get it in close, you know? And if you try to just rock it out like a, like you can with a uh, two-headed rod or a cane pole, uh, it's, it's so short, you can't get out a lot of line. So when it's that short, a lot of time the fish is seeing you and it'll take a, So I use a two-headed rod because uh, you can make a little bit of a cast out of ways and you can bring it in really close because I can choke way up on that bamboo rod, get like halfway in the middle and use a very short line on them. Whereas a two-handed rod, you can't do that. Oh, I see. I got gotcha. you. Okay. I mean, excuse me, a one-handed oh, rod, yeah, you one can't handed. do that. Yeah, one yeah handed. two-handed rod, you can. Yeah. If you could have one rod for carp all around out there, what would the rod be like length, weight? Well, it'd probably be around a 12-foot two-headed rod, you know, with a click reel on it. Yeah, like a six-weight or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, just your normal yeah. summer steelhead rod. Yeah, right, exactly. That, in fact, that's what I had, 11-and-a-half-foot six-weight because I can single-hand it. Yeah. It's like a, almost like a switch rod. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. So that's it. So yeah, the switch rod would be great. I didn't even think about that, but so, so you can do the, like you said, the dap, I mean, there's all sorts of techniques. It sounds like with carp to get them. The, the key is, is that you don't want to be, you spooking them. They're spooky fish, right? That's the kind of the key. That, yeah. that's, that's what the key is right there. Yeah. Sometimes you can wade right in the middle of them and I just stand there. Then as I see them move in closer, then I'll start dapping in front of them. I had one that I, sometimes you hear them slurping. 
mm. clooping the schmoots. And I saw him working these weeds. And I would gradually, when he would go, when he would start clooping, I would take a step forward. And I tried to cut him off at the pass. And I literally waited for him with my rod out in front where I thought he might be. I waited for him to come up and I dropped my fly right in his mouth. Not wow. casting, just dropped it in his open mouth. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I think, I don't know who was more surprised, that fish or me, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was kind of fun. Nice, nice, awesome. And, um, and when you worked at the fly shop, um, remind me again, what year was it when you moved out to the, or the fly shop in Reading? Uh, it was 2005. Yeah, 2005. So when you did that, was CARP, did they have uh, any CARP programs there? Was that a, a talk at all? None whatsoever. No, so you went no. there. You went, is that when your um, your saltwater started? Uh, no, yeah. actually, I started saltwater quite a bit before that, and that's one reason I got the job because I I've been to Venezuela and Baja and uh, Christmas Island and the Cook Islands and you know a lot of different places already. Yeah. Okay. And, and you had you were yeah. So you've been already traveling. So they, you went to the fly, fly shop Reading. Talk about that when you went there. Was that kind of like um, a hosted program, or what was your role there? Most of your time is just sitting in the office with earphones on, much like what I'm doing here. And people would call, and they would be directed to me if say I'm looking to go take a trip down to the Bahamas. Well, when I first got there, it's like they they gave me three weeks on. Um, Andros Island, just Andros Island. They sent me down there for three weeks to go to the, all of the resorts on that island. So I put together an itinerary and I, I traveled it for three weeks. So I knew every one of the places that we recommended going. And um, the, so the phone call would be directed to me and I could find out by asking them questions, what they want to do, when they want to go, what they can expect, you know, the time of year makes a big difference or what to expect. So, or Christmas Island or uh, the Yucatan. Uh, I, did, I had done a lot of the Yucatan before that too, before I went there. Amazing. So, yeah, so you've done a lot of traveling. And so that's kind of what they did. So, yeah, they bring you down as like an expert or you'd be there and they'd people call and you'd, you'd, they'd, you'd get to check out the places on your own and explore and then come back and talk about them. Right. Well, they'd send me down. That was my job. I even got paid while I was down there. Yeah. Sounds like a great job. Yeah. <laughs> So the traveling, are you still doing a lot of traveling or is that something you miss or what, what's that look like now? Well, I, three years ago, I started putting together a trip down to the Yucatan again. My friend who lives in Isla Obos, which is the very northern tip of the Yucatan, that's where he fishes and that's where I've fished and took a lot of people up there. And I've been working with him for almost 30 years, sending people to him and such. So uh, I've been doing that for quite a while, and I'd fish all up and down the Yucatan on my own. And plus the fly shop had a, what they call an exclusive down in the lower part of uh, the Yucatan. So they sent me down there to, to see what that was like, too. So I knew, knew the Yucatan. I knew Mexico fly fishing better than I knew Washington fly fishing for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've been going down there so often and so much. And... Uh, and, and then Venezuela was in there too, so I've been there four or five times. So I came to them with a background in traveling and hosting trips. So after I got to know these places, then I would get together groups to uh, go to different places. And they would send me like to Alaska 
They sent me down to uh, Tierra del Fuego to fish for the Sea Run Browns. I, I really like that. That's just super fishing. And um, so, and up to Canada, uh, fishing a few places. So, yeah, I, I, I got to see other places besides just salt water, warm salt water. Right. You checked out all the major. Well, and, and now do you, if you could, would you be traveling, you know, as much now? You know, is that something you would like? Or do you, I always think of that myself because I'm at this point where I just want to do as much traveling as possible. But I always, I think that probably eventually once you've done it all, maybe that gets a little bit old too. I don't know if it gets so old, but you get to accept <laughs> it doesn't get old. You get old. Yeah, you get old. get old. The traveling isn't as easy, right? <laughs> right. The traveling isn't quite as easy, but... uh it's like this last time. I just couldn't. I've got things going on with my legs and stuff, and I just can't stand up on the bow like I used to, and I can't get up and down off the bow like I used to. So uh, I, I, when I go out with these groups and things, I'll go out with different people. Most I just uh, go along to take pictures and hang out in the boat, you know. And so yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I actually don't fish too much when I go on them anymore. So and and I'm happy with that. You know, long time ago, uh, when my wife and I were first married, uh, my dad passed away at 67 years old. Mm. And I said to her and she said to me both, we both agreed, we're going to do stuff while we can because I could get hit by a car tomorrow and be paralyzed, you know, from the waist down or something. And then you'd have all these regrets that you didn't do what you could. So as long as we took, you know, we, we took care of our kid. And we took care of our house. We always had a place, you know, uh, we had shelter, we had food, uh, we took care of our kid. And, and as long as we could, we would do these things, you know, as long as we could do it. And uh, so I'm at the position, I'm 78 years old, so I can't walk as fast. My balance isn't near as good, you know. And uh, so I don't I do not do as much of that as, as I used to. And, and I don't want to. And, and plus, I don't like being gone that long for my wife either so yeah i hear you no i think that's i think you're doing amazing because uh i didn't know how old you were but yeah 78 and you're still doing trips down to mexico that's yeah. you know that's pretty awesome so it shows that you know you're still doing it. i've talked to a number of people on here on this podcast in their 90s you know including you know joe humphreys and um you know uh, joan wolf yeah. and uh you know plenty of people that in fact frank moore before he passed away you know, I met him in person and I shook his hand and I mean, I, I thought he was going to crush my hand. He was so strong, you know? So I feel yeah. like the, you know, like the, uh, the back of the day, the 80 or 90 is the new 70 or 60, right? It feels like that, you know, as long as you take care of yourself and you do good stuff, you know, then you're going to probably live a pretty healthy life, right? That's what I'm hoping. Although I've done a lot of bad stuff to my life too, <laughs> but I hope I can just keep going and yeah, and I'll, I'll probably won't. You know that's two weeks gone at one time, and I, I just, I just don't like being away from. That's home a lot. Home. No, I'm, yeah, yeah I'm kind of the same way. I, I like the traveling we're we're doing. We have a kind of a hosted school program, and I've been, you know, get out and yeah. I just find that just being out with the people and, like you said, taking pictures, the traveling. I really like the traveling. I kind of enjoy all that. Yeah. So it's fun for me. But yeah, the fishing is almost. It's kind of crazy to say, right? But it's almost secondary. It's not even if I don't catch a fish, you know, it's not the end of the world anymore. You know, it's not crazy because I, I got to tell you that I used to be able to fish by myself and alone all the time because, quite frankly, I enjoyed my company and I was on my schedule. Didn't have to worry about anybody else. Now, um, 
I don't fish alone as much, not not because of uh, thinking of safety or anything, because I just don't care for it as much. I like to be with people. That's why I like the schmooze clooper. Mm, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, we had 30 people there interested in one thing. Right. You know, well, excuse me, two things. Catching a few fish, but also, the, like I mentioned before, the social part. And now I find the older I get, the more I like the social part. Mm. So if that, on that, and say it again, the, the Schmoot Klooper? Schmoot's Klooper, yeah. Yeah, Schmoot's Klooper. Uh, on that event, if you could have, you know, build this thing up to 300 people, or if somebody could take it to, you know, another level, would that be something that, you know, would be interesting to see? Or is 30 people just the right amount? Yeah, 25 to 35 people is perfect. It's just a nine-room motel that we take over. And then other people uh, will sleep in the back of their trucks. Oh, right. That's perfect. Yep. Dirt bagging it. Right. She has places there to park their trucks. Oh, perfect. Vehicles. And um, and there is another motel in town. If people, if the Alicozzi is is full, then they go into this other okay. place. Yeah. yeah, right on. This is great. Okay. Well, I think, you know, we, we touched on some of the carp stuff. I think you really um, provided some interesting uh, tips there. I think what we'll do is hold that maybe for the next one and we will you know, dig more into that and everything else you have going. Uh, maybe give us a heads up before we get out of here. You know, and now we're heading into, you know, towards the end of summer, looking ahead and maybe the next, this year into next, what do you have coming? Anything you want to give a shout out, what you have come with uh, your website, anything with fly fishing? Um, n- not so much. This is the time that I like to steelhead fish. Okay. Yeah. And so if there, there's stuff that's open to me, I can't wade the, the tricky waters like I used to. But uh, I would like to get out and do some steelheading and, um, and such. But other than that, I'll, I'll tie, use this time to tie flies. I also like to carve, you know, wood carvings. Cool. So um, I got plenty of scars on my left hand to show it. Yeah. What, what do you use for a carving? What's a, what would be a good carving knife to use? My kids love carving. What would be a good one? Well, there, there are carving knives that you can buy. And, and, and they're shaped to your hand. They have kind of a curved shape. That's what I use in different sizes, and I also use different gouges and things like that. Gotcha. What do you carve? Oh, everything from small amulets like fish, you know, they can be on necklaces uh, to to larger. Uh, I'm looking at one now that's uh, a fish like coming up out of the water, but it's coming up out of a stump that I, I found on the Skycomish River. Mm-hmm. And it's still got rocks embedded in it and everything. So I've got a couple of the big ones like that. And I, you know, I, when I first got going on it, I liked carving the uh, Northwest Indian stuff. I'd look at their carvings and copy their stuff cause, just because it was so cool. That's right. Yeah, you're right in a – you're kind of in an area. Isn't there a, a giant um, tribal, right, just up north of you? What's the cult? The cult I want to say there's one big – Trying to think, you're in Wenatchee now, or what, what town are you in? No, I, I'm in Seattle. Oh, right, you're back in Seattle. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say it was. The you're Col- thinking of the Colville. Col- yeah, Colville. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're back in Seattle. That's right. Okay, yeah. perfect. So you got that going. Then tell me, let's. I want to hear on steelhead real quick. Um, first, do, do you remember your first steelhead you caught on a fly? Yeah, I do. On the fly, it was. Uh, I wanted to make a bamboo split bamboo rod, and there was a fellow in Seattle. His name was Don Holbrook, and he had brought a lot of the Tonkin cane. Uh, over, I think it was from Korea, hmm. China. And uh, uh, anyway, he brought it over and uh, in the 50s. And he just pulled 
combs of bamboo out of that for years and years and years and years. And he put on the class every year. And that was just one of the most interesting classes I've ever taken like that. And I learned a lot about uh, rods, you know, and their tapers and what makes a rod cast like it does. And I made an eight weight split bamboo rod. Um, you plane it, you spend hours, but I put about 130 hours on it. I'd never used a plane in my life, so I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Guys that really know what they're doing can put one out in about 30 hours, 30, 40 hours. But I put in about 130 on this just because I didn't know what I was doing. But I finally got it made, and I went up to the uh, North Fork of the Stillaguamish and uh, took it up there with me, and uh, I was going to use it for the first time and walked down. I was pretty proud of it, you know. And uh, I mean, there was a guy at one of the one of the places I'd been before, but I hadn't caught any steelhead, but one of the places there, and uh, there was a guy fishing there, so I didn't want to, you know, move in on his water. So he said, yeah, right down downstream a little bit, there's a really good place down there. So uh, I ended up calling it the maple hole because I had this huge maple tree that went out over the river, and you can climb up in it and you can look down and see if there's any steelhead. Oh, wow. Yeah, but that isn't where I caught it. It's where it, it went out of the hole. It took like a almost a 90-degree, I'll say a 60-degree curve around into another pool. And uh, I put the fly down through there. I think it was a Skycomish Sunrise. And I caught a fish. I hooked steelhead. Couldn't believe it. Uh, I hooked that thing, and I played it, and I got it in. And this was in um, 72 or 73. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so I, I, I killed the fish. And I brought it back up, and <laughs> I said, told the guy that was still fishing, I said, thanks a lot. And he said, where'd you get that? <laughs> I said, right where you told me. I appreciate it. What a nice thing to do. And I could tell right then that he just wanted me out of his pool. Right. He, he just wanted me to move on down. Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, that was my first one. It was about about six pounds. Yeah, six pounds. Was this a... Um... A winter steelhead or a summer? Summer steelhead. Yeah, summer steelhead. Yeah. Wow, cool. And Sky Comish. And that's that's awesome. And then what is your No, that was nap? on the Still Guamish. Oh, that was on the Still Guamish, yeah, yeah. With the with the Sky Comish sunrise. Right. Cool. And then what was your so right now if you were to go out summer steelhead fishing, what would be your one steelhead fly you'd put on? I don't have one favorite. I'll put it to, I, I do have one favorite fly. In fact I've got it tattooed on my arm. Okay. On my other arm. Not the, yeah. not the <laughs> right. thumb. I've got another one that has a steelhead fish and then my favorite fly that's on there it's called a it's it's a bill's bead butt burlap oh wow <laughs> so we just shortened it to bbb and um actually there's another b in there but it's just too hard to say four b's and since my son is a tattoo artist i've been thinking for years what do i want as a tattoo that's going to be on my body for the rest of my life and I finally narrowed it down to kind of what I wanted. And then I tried to find the picture of the steelhead that I wanted. And I finally remembered that I had one in my own archives. And do you know, do you know uh, Justin Miller? Yeah. Do yep. you? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know him. I know of the name. I think yeah. we've probably talked on email. Yeah. He and I have, have used to go up to Thompson every year in B.C., and we went up there one year, and it was just so cold. It was just miserably cold. And we got up there kind of late, so we had a chance to go out and fish one run. And so he was down below me, and I fished my run. 
And I finally got up to the car where my brother was waiting. He, he wasn't fishing at the time. He liked to take photographs. So I said, this is the truth. I said to my brother, I said, now you watch. It was a pretty steep hill that I just came up. And it was a pretty steep hill to get down to where Justin was. You watch. He's going to yell here in the next few minutes. He's got a fish on. And I've got to go back down this hill so I can take pictures. And pretty soon I hear this yipping and hollering. And I went down there. And it was so cool. It was right at dark. Uh, there was ice all over his waders. There was ice caps on all the rocks around there. And this fish was beautiful. About 14 pounds of hen fish that was just just rosy-cheeked and gorgeous. And uh, we took some pictures, and then uh, he let it go, and then we went back up. And then I remembered that fish. I want that fish, I said, just before it hits the fly. And so I gave my son the idea. Then I gave him my favorite fly, the one I told you about. Mm -hmm. So he put that on there, although that is the one that was used. He put that fly on my arm, and that's just the coolest. In fact, there was an article we did on it in uh, Swing the Fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did an, I did an oh, article, cool. and they printed it in there. There's a good picture of it. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, we'll try to look up that article if we can. And, um, yeah, and check in. I, I love that we wrap this up with Steelhead. We've got a lot of people that love Steelhead, and, oh, yeah. and so this is great. Um, good, Bill. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, we'll send okay. everybody out to BillMartsFlyFishing.com if they want to check with you or connect with some of the stuff you have going. And, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for, uh, you know, coming in today. And, uh, and for all the years and all the great work you've put together. I, I know we've had some people recommend you for the show, so I'm glad we can uh, you know get you on and, and hear the story. So thanks for your time, Bill. Well, thank you for having me on. I, I enjoy, you, you can tell I like talking about this. <laughs> all right, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay, thanks. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country, so if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.